Welcome to the Student Physio Podcast. In this series, we'll be delving deep into the SEL through three unique episodes. In this episode, we're joined by Helen McElroy to go through a new SEL pathway that she's developed in her clinic. I hope you enjoy this episode, and as ever, we welcome your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PhysioPodcast1. So here's episode one. I'm now joined by Helen McElroy, who I've had the pleasure of spending five weeks on placement with recently. Um, the, the environment that I was in was predominantly sports performance, um, but we had a mixture of, of sort of recreational athletes, elite athletes, and then just members of the general public. So this episode is going to be predominantly about looking at the SEL pathway that Helen and her team have developed, and, and I played a small part in, in helping out with that. So we're going to kind of go through... Um, what the SEL pathway looks like, how this process has come about in terms of development, go a little bit in the detail into the pathway, and then what are the objectives going forward with, with looking at this. So, Helen, first off, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, do you want to give everyone a little bit of background to sort of university experience and, and the clinic that you work in and own? Um, yeah, so I am qualified longer than I would care to admit. So I qualified in 2008 and um, have always kind of wanted to work in sport. Um, so I went to New Zealand straight after university, came back, did a master's in sports physio, worked predominantly in, I'm based in Northern Ireland, so worked predominantly within um, like inter-county GAA when I came home. Um, completed my master's and then I opened my clinic it's actually 10 years ago now this October um I've then also went on and done a PhD in hip and groin injury in um Gaelic football so we do see um as you just rightly said Lewis I suppose you've spent five weeks with us so we see a lot of um recreational to elite um Gaelic footballers hurlers um and a lot of field um based athletes and we do have a growing amount of athletics and things but yeah it would be predominantly field-based sports that we see at the moment so the the sal pathway was something that we had actually started working on um the first week that, that i was in what was the sort of thought process behind updating it so i suppose um the thought process behind it was that it was something that i had been kind of putting on the back burner for a long time and I have an impending maternity leave, which means I'll be going off work for a while. So um, just to allow that continuity of care along um, all our staff, and we have quite a growing um, level of staff. So just it was more to get a continuity of care um, across our staff um, and to put actually on paper um, and bring together all our ideas of best practice in managing an ACL. So we started that process um, by we invited down one of the consultants that we would work quite closely with and he when he came down he talked us through a lot of the things that he would like us um as physios not just our practice in general but as physios to do better um so that kind of was that kick-started kind of the process and um, we've done joint cpd sessions with other clinics to find out what they're doing what works well with them um, and then we brought together our own ideas and kind of come up with um, what we felt our pathway maybe lacked and how we could improve on that. So um, you've seen quite a bit of the process, Lewis. Um, you know, it was kind of, it was initiated prior to you arriving, but you kind of landed in then 
as we were actually getting stuck in and stuck into doing um you were in for the the patient leaflet part weren't yep. you yep. yeah so one of the big gaps that we identified was that we don't feel we educate our patients well enough from the outset on the ACL rehab process and what it involves and um, everybody knows you know it's a nine to 12 month process but how you actually break that down and outline that for um, an athlete I don't feel we were doing that well enough um, so one of the things we worked on was outlining that pathway from a patient perspective what it looks like for them how from the first day they come in to us because generally we're the first contact they see um, and how we arrange their diagnostics, their surgery, if they go for surgery, what their pre-op care looks like and what that nine to 12 months post-op looks like and breaking down those phases of them getting back into sports. So um, we find that that was one of the big key things that we wanted to address just from a patient education point of view because anybody who I suppose has rehabbed a lot of ACLs um, they do get a wee bit fed up um, you know when they're at that kind of six seven month mark and they feel great and they're back running but they're not ready for sport yet so we wanted to outline all the goals all the targets for them um, you know the big milestones um, that we have for them the, the testing gateways that we have for them and what a successful rehabilitation of an ACL will look like for them so that they we're, we're really setting expectations from the start. Yeah, I think it's something that I had thought about whenever we had first started looking at the patient pathway was that that initial um, sort of consultation where you come into them and then you outline that to them, that doesn't, you know, how often would that actually get, you would go back over that within that nine months, whereas if you've got something that's written down in lemon's terms that you give to the patient physically, they can constantly keep going back to it and kind of seeing that, okay, well, I've just done this. So I'm heading on to this stage and then this is what's coming up next. And giving them that sort of visual sort of representation of the pathway that they're on is surely good for motivation as well. Whenever you're talking about that six month lull. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think, um, you know, they, they kind of have um, from, just from experience and working with the patients, you know, they have their, in their head, their milestones are, then they get off their crutches. The next one is probably getting onto a bike and the next one is probably running and the next one is getting back to training. But there's a massive gap between running and training. Um, you know, and a lot of them don't understand the level of strength work and the level of um of work and rehab in general that goes into getting you to run efficiently, to getting you to turn efficiently. Um, and especially in those who have non-contact ACL injuries, you know, those are the ones that potentially you're looking at are at slightly higher risk of tearing their other side. So we do frame that from the outset in that, you know, you now have nine to 12 months out of sport here. We want to address, you know, any other performance deficits. We want to look at deficits in the other limb um, and use this time to actually become hopefully a better athlete um, and work on those things that maybe you'll not get just as much time to do, um, you know, going from season to season. So we did set that out quite nicely for them. Um, and we broke it up into phases and, and we put gateways on it of what our testing would look like at each phase um, and what our thresholds would be for them to actually pass through those gateways. So 
just on the that sort of athletic performance aspect that that comes with with an SEL injury, um, you also run strength and running classes, um, that are sort of there's sort of about seven or eight of them, um, per session, and something that I had picked up was how many of them maybe had slightly different. I don't want to say niggles because they weren't type injuries, but they were maybe noticing deficits that they were having in comparison to the peers that were in their class. So one that I can remember um, is that they, one of the lads was struggling with lateral hip strength. Mm-hmm. And whenever we were going through the strength part of it and he was struggling, he was seeing the weight that the other guys were putting on and he couldn't quite get up to that weight. And then once they had went off and done, done testing on them, that there was actually quite a big deficit what what's the purpose of of having the class and is that actually part of what you're trying to incorporate is that you've got a lot of like-minded athletes in the same room all going for the one goal and they're they're kind of feeding and bouncing off each other to help yeah. all get to that that angle i suppose the big thing with the with the classes if you and especially because again a lot of what we see are our field-based athletes so they they are team sport athletes they're used to training in you know with their peers and with their friends um, and a massive part of being injured is taking away that social element of it. You know, you went from training three nights a week with your with your friends to lonely rehab sessions in the gym. And let's be honest, rehab can be boring and it can be lonely. So um, we again, because a lot of our guys are maybe playing the same sport um, and they're all field based athletes, it is easier to group them. Um, and the other big thing about that is we get much more con- a lot more contact points with our um, athletes throughout the rehab process. So generally, you know, once they get out of that acute phase and they're, you know, they're off their crutches and they're walking well and we're just monitoring the rehab, um, you know, you might not see these athletes that often. We're quite lucky that we have our rehab facilities on site. Um, and anybody who's rehabbing from an ACL needs to be attending a gym anyway. So we've just structured it that um, they're physio supervised sessions um, and it helps just from a coaching point of view. And just using that example that you're talking about, you know, if we didn't have the physio supervising those sessions, would we have picked up on that lateral hip strength deficit just as quickly? Um, would we be able to change those that rehab as quickly or regress or progress an exercise you know we can do that on the spot at any stage some of our lads are attending three to four days a week and um, so we can do that um, whereas if you only have like a monthly review you know is that athlete actually working to their max potential within that month you know or if they suddenly develop a little bit of patellar tendon pain and they drop some of those exercises because it's sore at least with us having those touch points um between those one-to-one reviews then we're able to as i said progress or regress exercises really really easily and we're also able to coach on the gym floor and inform you know um that they're actually sometimes you you can see some shocking um attempts at doing rehab exercises so it is quite easy for us to um to coach the athletes in in their better form improving their form sorry yeah that that was actually going to be my next point um just on the classes is that especially whenever they're introduced to a progression and it's a a slightly more complex technique say the first couple of times where they're maybe using the the video to look at it 
and they think they're copying the video and then you actually show them what they are doing in comparison to the video if if they were to just keep playing away with the technique that they originally adopted the potential complications of doing it wrong are are quite significant in comparison to having someone who's on site who can say actually hold on a second just change this slightly they feel the difference and then all of a sudden they're they're back on track again that was that that was something that i thought if if you were to put a class on and not understand what the goals were to get out of it that's solely in terms of what the athletes can get out of it from having coaching cues is was absolutely massive i i find yeah i think that is it is huge we like our athletes are not allowed to, to enter the class until they've kind of passed that gateway one and one of the things that we have put into gateway one is that they're confident with the likes of their compound lifts and that they can jump and land that their their base level plyometrics are are confident um so yeah we have that that all of that is taught on a one-to-one basis prior to them entering the class just so that the class doesn't fall apart and you're not spending a lot of time teaching somebody how to yeah. squat or to deadlift. But at the same time, there, there will need to be tweaks as you go along, but it might be based on, you know, a previous ankle fracture or, you know, they have a long history of groin pain or something like that, or, you know, they have a sore back that day and those things need tweaks. So it is, it is much easier to do that in person with them, which is great. Do you want to go into a little bit more detail into what that sort of gateway one looks like, what it involves, what that criteria for progression is? Yeah, so we have um, we have the gateways done um, that we have. The first one, as I said, then is that entry level into the class. So we have broken down our pathway into five different phases. The first of which is that early management phase. So that's kind of controlling the swelling, getting them back off their crutches, regaining their full range of movement. Um, and as I mentioned just before, that competency with their competent lifts and beginning, then their low level plyometrics. Um, the gateway one testing is predominantly body weight. Um, so it's things like their single leg squats um, to a bench, hamstring strength testing, um, they do calf raises, they do side plank, um, and then we, as I said, we look at their compound lifts and their competency with their jumps before we will let them into that class phase setting. So all of that, anything prior to that and anything in that early management phase is all done one-to-one. And then they do move on into a strength accumulation phase. And I suppose one thing I would bring up there is that these phases do very much blend into each other. So, you know, whilst the second phase is that strength accumulation, and once they get out of that and into their training integration phase or their running integration phase, they, they obviously still continue some strength work. It's not as if they just do strength work for three or four months and then they stop. Um, so they do very much blend into each other. So in that second phase, they are looking at obviously a strength focus and um, progressing on their plyometrics and they're preparing for their return to run. And then after that, their gateway two takes place around four months and um, between three and four months depending on how good they are it could be four and a half it could be five months depending on the athlete um, but in that then we're looking at again hamstring groin strength lateral hip strength jump testing we use four steps for that and then that's the first time they do their isokinetics as well so we're looking at their max strength of their hamstrings and quads on that um, and we have set out our own thresholds of what we expect from our athletes based on the sport they play, their age, their weight, and the level they play at, and 
their graph type, all of those kind of things. So it is quite individualized for them. The, um, sorry, go I know, ahead. I know I was, I was just going to butt in and sort of mention a little bit about that running integ integration phase. Um, we had a quite, quite a nice conversation about how you sort of in your head, 16 weeks is almost that benchmark, but quite a lot of the evidence is sort of saying about 12 weeks and your rationale for holding them off for those four weeks, I thought was really interesting. Do you want to just share what, what we had said that day? Yeah, so I suppose I said I'm qualified a long time and um, whenever I first qualified, you got the protocols back from the surgeon and it said running at 12 weeks and that was kind of traditionally always the way. Um, I suppose as we've moved more towards integrating that performance element to it and um, we have improved our, even our SNC knowledge, um, what we kind of find is that sometimes we can get better outcomes not always some 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 guys are ready to run at 12 weeks and again we'll not hold them back if we really do feel that they're ready but sometimes um it can take up to 16 weeks for them to be running efficiently um and what we kind of stressed was that although the the athletes come in and you know they know 12 weeks because again the surgeon has has maybe said it to them or you know they've googled it and, and 12 weeks seems to be that benchmark for running um, you know, what we would encourage is that they are well ready for running. Um, you know, I know it's a massive psychological boost for them that they're back on the pitch, but at the same time, we would prefer that they're spending more time being highly competent at their running than running for running sick. And um, the other element of that is that, that, you know, these athletes are out for a minimum of nine months. They have all the time in the world from four months to nine months to regain pitch fitness, match fitness, ability to change direction. But if we can hold them and spend that extra four weeks working on that improved level of competency, say between 12 and 16 weeks, we're hoping that that will give them a better outcome performance wise at nine months. Yeah. And there's almost an element of putting them in a frame of mind in terms of what actually is running to them. So I feel like what you've mentioned there is, you know, a lot of it, the way they see running is pitch running with a ball or doing laps or whatever, but that actual, the, the components of the mechanics of what running actually is actually starts really, really early in terms of looking at your, your skips and your marches and, and how that movement progresses into what they perceive to be running. The education around that is really important. There was a there was a day that we we had shared with another clinic where we actually went quite in depth into that sort of preparation for running, if you like. And we had looked at work um, done by Grace Golden. Do you, do you want to share a little bit about what we'd covered in that day? Yeah, so that was something that um, they kind of had brought to us in that they... Um, are, are introducing a very easy ch change of direction um, from very, very early on. And I suppose this is to try and take the fear out of change of direction because again, that, you know, a lot of people think of change direction as that plant and cut, um, whereas we want them to be confident with, you know, their smaller changes of direction um, reducing the speed of change of direction and being highly confident in that movement before we would ever place them in any form of um you know high speed element to that so that's definitely something that was that we took from that learning day um where 
you know, maybe were we not introducing that at an early enough stage or, you know, can that be done even at a walking pace, you know, so and introducing that into our, you know, our movement prep of our, our um, classes and, and those kind of things. So, yeah, definitely that was that was a really useful day for us. And, and I suppose the, the obvious question from that is taking what you've already implemented in, into the new pathway or the, the updated pathway and what they've taught you, how, how can you see what they brought to the table that day being integrated and, and where would you see it being integrated into the pathway that, that you've made? Yeah, I do think it's definitely in that early stage, you know, that um, the early management and that strength accumulation phase and, and the very early stages of that, of that running integration, you know, um, I do think that we'll, we'll start to introduce that potentially in the likes of warm-up sessions quite early in our coaching sessions quite early um, you know it can be introduced in games within um, classes you know all of those kind of things I think we can integrate it quite nicely it's not a million miles away from what we were doing they just had a lovely structure to it yeah, definitely I think that sort of four phase where you were only changing one component each time going from sort of changing the plane and then the changing the direction was a really it, it kind of it was like the basics of the basics and it was kind of sitting right in front of you. But once it's explained to you, you, you never really think of it like that. And I suppose that's the other thing that we needed to do from, you know, just from a clinic development point of view is it adds the structure to it that we potentially didn't have before. And as I said, um, you know, in a, in a quickly growing clinic and especially with me going off on maternity leave and handing over a lot of these long-term rehabs, we want that anybody who takes them over is, is doing the same you know that we're that we're treating these people the same across the board so and especially with the classes the classes are taken by different physios so we need the level of training in-house um to be you know that everybody is following the same rough outline of a pathway rather than it's not a I wouldn't call it a protocol and I wouldn't you know I wouldn't even call it a recipe for each person you know there is things that we will chop and change for each individual but if we have are big rocks that um, every member of staff are know the goals and know how they're gonna get them to pass those those markers. And if we can tick all of those off, we're doing a fairly good job and we can be confident in that. Yeah, I definitely think from a student perspective, before we had started doing it, my vision of what an SEL pathway looked like, I could sort of visualize it up until that end of strength accumulation phase and then I had said do that sort of blend of plyometrics and then into running was just something that I I just couldn't sort of see it and then once we had sat down and kind of worked it out like that actually having that I know you, you said it's not a protocol but actually having that distinct sort of visual representation of what it looks like to bounce from one phase to the next makes it a whole lot easier for even for, for us as students that you can almost prep for each phase and then it's about knowing when that comes, what you're testing at that phase and then making sure that they've hit that criteria well enough to bounce into the next phase as opposed to you to, to what it had felt like to me before would have been trying to mix and merge loads of pieces of evidence together to create your own, but there's yeah. nothing really concrete there. Yeah. 
Well, I suppose the other element of that then is, is the way that we structure the programming. Um, and we have tried to make that um, as standardized as possible. Not that everybody gets the same exercises, but that each session ha follows the similar kind of format. Um, so, you know, they complete some movement prep stuff. They will complete some either like running mechanics based stuff or plyometrics based stuff. It's we're basically following that exhaust model. Yep. And then they go into their bigger lifts or their, you know, they might be doing, you know, a squat on that day. But if they have a history of groin pain, they might be following that up with an accessory movement of say a Copenhagen or something like that. You know, and it, it leaves us the scope to individualize their rehab, but again, within not only the class-based setting, but if they're doing individual sessions that um, across the board, we're programming following the same template as such, and that we know that we are, again, covering all of those big areas that need to be covered within each phase. Yeah. Um, so just outlining that and educating our staff on that. And everybody kind of having done that training now, you know, we're all kind of all singing off the same hymn sheet in that way. So you've touched on that a wee bit there about the, the different tests and at, at the end of each gateway. Um, you have the luxury of having lots of really cool equipment um, and testing equipment. And you've got quite a bit of the, the valid um, performance stuff. And you've said about having the Isaac Kinetics. What sort of testing are you doing? Um in terms of looking at kind of jumps and, and things like that? Yeah, so I suppose that um, changes as you go through the phases. So in that phase one, we don't even put them on the force decks. We're just looking for that competency of, um, you know, what a, a good counter movement jump. We're not looking at, you know, jump height or anything like that. We're looking at competency of hopping. We're looking at competency of counter movement jumps. We're looking at um, hopping back and forwards and hopping in different directions and those kind of things and, and the confidence level of the athlete with that um, gateway two then uh, which as I said is around four months just roughly um, that's the first time they do go onto the four steps so in that one they look at counter movement jump single leg jump and a, and a double leg drop jump if, um, if they're happy with that um, but generally at that phase they are um, and then in gateway three, then we add in some single leg drop jumps and um, a 10-5. So looking a wee bit more at that reactiveness um, and adding in a little bit more of a performance level with that. So, um, you know, it's at that phase that we're not only looking at asymmetry, but also our, our performance markers there as well. Um, and then, yeah, we do our city calf raise on our isokinetics with that as well or sorry on our force decks with that so in terms of the the data that you're coming back from that how what sort of percentile deficit are you looking at and are you comparing it to like normative data that you've got yeah so we are looking at we have um we're quite lucky that we would have a lot of um, baseline data from healthy um athletes from the same population just because we do have that performance element to our our clinic as well so we would have you know um performance metrics of hundreds and hundreds of say if we take GA athletes um, as an example so we are looking at them in relation to that and then we're obviously looking at them in relation to their asymmetry so you'll want their asymmetry as close to zero as you possibly can um, at that point and um, obviously you're not going to get that at you know at four months you're not expecting um, zero asymmetries but it gives them a good benchmark and it gives them a good kind of it refocuses them on you know, um, the, the 
points that they need to still work on um, and it helps us just refine our our rehab as well and um, you know if they're coming out at four months with still a huge quad deficit on isokinetics you know we'll, we'll obviously make that a massive focus of their of their um rehab going forward then um interesting that you just mentioned quads there because the next thing i was going to ask was looking at sort of that patella graft hamstring graft um and the differences that you'd you'd expect between between the two um you had told me that you've noticed that there's a slight shift in the surgeries that are being done in terms of there's more patella grafts happening over over the hamstring grafts what kind of differences are you seeing in the test and with with those athletes in terms of isokinetics? Um, yeah, so I suppose it's all surgeon's preference on whether they get a hamstring graft or a patellar tendon graft. And, and it also depends on, say, previous injuries or anything like that. You know, if we have an athlete that has had a previous huge hamstring injury, you don't want to go in and obviously take a graft from that hamstring. Um, and I suppose the differences then we're seeing I would say our hamstring grafts, obviously they need their hamstring protected. Um, we, you know, we have had a few that not during rehab, just during day-to-day life have felt like they've pulled their hamstring in those early days and that can leave them with a, with a huge hamstring deficit, um, you know, if they, if they tear around their graft site. Um, and then the early focus of our rehab, obviously, in a hamstring graft is to, is to try and get some form of hamstring healing there and try and reduce that hamstring deficit as quickly as we can. With the patellar tendon ones, then obviously you have to be very careful that you don't irritate that patellar tendon, you know, throughout the rehab. So there's a lot more monitoring of anterior knee pain. Um, even just for these guys that are, um, you know, they're obviously all amateur athletes. So, um, you know, if you have an electrician that's kneeling quite a lot when they go back to work, you know, those kind of things, you do have to take all of that cons- into consideration and their graph type does need to be a massive element of decision-making then um, within their rehab. And I suppose something that, that I noticed with one of the hamstring graft guys was I had seen him and this was his second, second hamstring injury. He had one really early on um, and it was the, like you've just mentioned there, it was the most innocuous cause i think he said he, he had like stepped off the step out of the house or something and felt it that way it was really really basic and whenever we were were assessing him again we had noticed what we only described as what looked like a hole in his in his hamstring and i think even the visual of that and he the way he described it was that he felt like he was missing most of his hamstring even though in comparison to the size of the hamstring it was relatively small but how he was perceiving the the graph in terms of what was taken, he felt like that was massive. The conversations I've had with some of those guys who have had the hamstring graphs in comparison to some of those who have had the patella ones, there seems to be a slight, I, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a confidence issue, but the guys who have the patella ones seem to manage their deficits a lot better psychologically versus the the ones with the hamstring i just find that from from the class that i had seen in, in terms of who was in that yeah i suppose the ones that you were saying were still quite early stage by the time they get to the end they shouldn't have that um you know if we have done our job right we should have them that they are confident yeah um, 
with their with not only their graft and their ACL graft, but also their donor site as well. So, you know, it is our job to make sure that we can make those hamstrings as robust as possible. The lad you're talking about, yeah, he had a very innocuous hamstring injury really, really early, which can happen. Um, it is quite rare that it happens, but it can happen. And you were just fortunate enough to see it. Um, so yeah, those ones we do have to, you do have to work harder in trying to get that deficit back and get them to have confidence in their hamstring. Because obviously we need these lads sprinting, um, you know, so, or the girls sprinting. Um, the one in, in particular was a young fella. So um, we do need them that they have the confidence to sprint. Um, and that's where, you know, for the likes of him, we're obviously not, we're going to take that extra time to make sure that we have that hamstring strength as robust as possible before we let him sprint and that's the the nice thing about having you know nine months to a year with these guys is there's loads of time you know there's no rush for him I would be definitely holding him off on his higher speed running until we are absolutely certain that his hamstring can tolerate those loads yeah uh, yeah I think it was definitely one that for it to go once you know like you had said, it can happen, but for it to for it to go twice, you could even see it in him that almost like the frustration of, oh, like you know, you see other guys there who have got a patellograph, and I've got, you know, what were the, you know, why could I not have got that? It was kind of the conversation, and I think he was maybe five months, so he's probably just heading into that stage where it's like this has been a long process so far. I'm starting to see sort of the finish line, and then I get this kind of setback and managing those setbacks um is definitely something that I, I don't know if if it's mentioned very much at university but a lot of a lot of the perception that we would have been taught is that you know this is the this is the nine 12 months that they go through and then they come out the other side very rarely did we ever have the conversation of these are actually all the difficulties that they're going to face along the way and all the potential problems that may arise along the way or the very big problems you could have at the start like the um the lady i had who had the skin accident and you know a month and a half down the line you still couldn't get flexion or extension and those kind of complications that you have with 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 some patients is something that maybe just isn't talked about enough yeah i suppose that's the nature of um you know uh, getting to see a wide variety of these things you actually come in at a time where you know you've seen quite a few yeah random ones and to be perfectly honest but I think that's a good thing and I think you know those kind of things that you're talking about you know to me they're not huge issues because again they're they're all issues that we can sort over the length of a rehab process um somebody who's coming in with that will be very very lucky if they go from day one to day to the day they run to the day they get back on the pitch with absolutely no setbacks or blips or bumps in the road or anything like that um you know and maybe that's a detriment to, to us maybe that maybe that's just something that but I would say just given that these are all human beings you know and they have different backgrounds and they have different um you know they have different training histories and they have different um medical histories and all of those things and they've also different levels of you know commitment to their rehab and and what they can do you know you'll go from a 19 20 year old lad who can be in the gym every morning to you know a 34 year old father of two who you know is is working full-time or works for himself and doesn't have the same amount of time to commit to the rehab 
all of those things are incredibly different. Um, but looking at it overall, like even just thinking about the ones that you've mentioned there, they'll all do really well. They'll just, you know, for the likes of that guy with those hamstring injuries, yes, we'll have to hold him back on some of those things, but he'll still, he'll still get there and he'll still get there. Probably he's actually, he's actually doing very well. So in the long term, I don't think it's going to be an issue for yeah. him. Um, you know, it just, you know, you might just have to hold him back on one element and push him on on something else. Yeah. I think having that sort of adaptability and being able to see that, you know, one slight potential pitfall actually creates an opportunity to maybe focus on something else or it's as simple as it highlights a potential issue that may be there further down the road. So you're much better dealing with it now than, you know, you go through your whole rehab and then you've got all the, t- the tendinopathies or whatever that come that come with it that way. Yeah, I mean, like you had, you know, you're talking about the hamstring graft there, but then I've also had somebody who um, was quite late on in the rehab and almost back to return to play and very, very confident in their knee and decided to go cliff diving, um, you know, and he had a patellar tendon graft that patellar tendon did not like the fact that he was jumping off cliffs and that scared him, you know, so that's that probably wouldn't have happened in a hamstring yeah. graft. So, like as I said, these are all human beings who will go and do different things on different holidays and yeah. you know and have different goals or you know could be running after their kids in the garden and feel their hamstring go or you know yeah. there's all those things that can happen that you know we just need to deal with. Yeah, no, I definitely think having having this sort of pathway is really it it's really beneficial one to create one and then two to kind of talk about what you know the reasons why you've done it and the, the details of it. I think it really it's helped me massively to sort of understand this is what it looks like from start. This is what it can look like start to finish. This is what is expected of you as the physio, but then this is also what what's expected. And this is the understanding that the patient might have or might not have. And even that level of understanding that some of the patients have, you've got ones who are, they're so deep in the data and they'll nearly come to you with what they're expecting to see versus other, other ones who, one, they don't really care what the numbers are. They just want to be told that that they're ready to go, basically. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Um, and the numbers do help. They're not the be-all and end-all, but at the same time, if you play a competitive sport, um, you know, it's it's all about the scoreline. Yeah, exactly. And they to, one, improve themselves, but two, to be beating everybody else around them. So yeah. <laughs> um, from a, from a um, competitiveness point of view, they really do like that. And... The other thing then that we do is that we actually send that report back to their consultant now in seven months. So um, their um, gateway three is done just before their consultant review. And we'll send those results back to the consultant just so that the consultant can have a better idea of exactly where they stand from a strength point of view and whether they, because at that point, generally, you know, they'll go in and, and the consultant will check the graft. But apart from that, um, you know, they're not looking at, and it's not the surgeon's job to look at, you know, yeah. how confident they are with their movement. So at least if we can give them that feedback and, and make them see that we're actually, you know, working them through a process and yes, there is still more work to be done or that this athlete is absolutely flying, you know, yeah. um, that, that we are feeding that back to the consultants. So it, it helps from our perspective that the consultants understand what we're trying to achieve with them as well. Yeah. So suppose sort of the last question is, you know, going forward, you've made the changes. What what are your sort of expectations from from doing this update from 
you as an individual and then the staff that you've got around you and then ultimately how does that rub off on the patients well i suppose the first thing was to put the structure to it and then it um it'll give me a bit of peace of mind that when i go off and turn to leave that there is that structure there and that if anybody takes on these guys by this you can probably tell i'm a bit of a control freak um, so um, from that perspective, it also gives us a great learning opportunity for our junior staff that, um, you know, they're learning from our more senior staff into um, just even the SSC elements of things and how we program things and the performance element of it, because that's not taught at university. Yep. Um, and it, in my eyes, it's not good enough to get them a calm knee that they can run on and that they're confident on. To me, they should be returning to their sport in as good of a condition if not better than they previously were um so you know obviously that's within the confines of of their their injury and those kind of things but um that would be you know adding in that performance element to it i think is massive um, and it just i suppose increasing the level of care for these athletes you know um so that there is the facility there that they can be tested to that high level and that we can, you know, give them a good experience after that ACL injury as well, you know, and that they're highly confident in their knee going back to their sport. Yeah. I suppose just a sort of last touch is that, you know, like I've said, I, I've learned so much from, from doing this pathway. It's, it's a really, it's a really good opportunity to get loads out of it for yourself. Plus having the benefit of, of everyone around you, having that sort of shared learning um is is absolutely massive and to sort of get that opportunity while on placement um has been has been brilliant for me so just a just a thank you for for everything you've that you've offered me in the last five weeks not a problem it's been a pleasure